0: to each of you. It's good to be here in God's house. And good to see each of you here with me. <laughs> John, good to see you again. I was mentioned already, but it really is all of you. James, Thomas, everybody that's here, it's just good to be here together. I've been thinking the last while about a, a subject, um, it's been on my mind a while, and that doesn't always turn it into a sermon, but uh, we'll see what happens here. I've been thinking about God's grace, and I guess there's the subject of faith and works, which gets a fair amount of press, a lot of fair amount of conversation in church circles sometimes, and a lot of times it can get a little controversial or we perceive it that way because we think there's a conflict between those two elements of salvation. Uh, if we look at those like two opposing viewpoints or requirements to how we gain salvation. But uh, I was thinking about this and I thought, you know, really, okay, the faith is something God expects or asks of us, Maybe we'd be better served to look at a subject like grace and works, where I think we'd agree that grace is what God does. And then works, or faith, uh, belief; those are things that, though a small must see them out, that's what is on our part, or, or that we need to respond to God with. Uh, God freely gave His provisions to man as far as salvation, and then man has the opportunity to respond in faith or to reject that. If we respond respond in faith, it results in the new birth, or entering the kingdom of God. There's a number of verses, a number of terms in the New Testament that we, we find used to talk about the beginning of the salvation journey. And that, of course, is ongoing walking with the King after we start that journey. One thing for sure is a, a common thread that connects the newest, most immature babe in Christ who has just out his heart to Jesus and accepted the Lord and looks to Him for salvation. That common thread between that person and the most mature, gray-haired, Lifelong past saints, there should be a similar thread between those two of un- a sense of unworthiness and indebtedness to Jesus. The one, the newborn, uh, bathing Christ can rest secure in sanctification and justification. And the old past uh, saint needs to recognize that he still needs grace every day and lots of it. I have some verses from Hebrews chapter 12. What I want to look at this morning, the title of the is actually The View from the Cross. And uh, I want to look at the cross and some of the gory details of the cross and Jesus and how He came to the cross and what He experienced there, what the devil intended to do. But what Jesus Took control of that whole situation, and and he was just in charge, and he lived through it the way he planned and wanted to. He and his father, and then, while well, the first recipients of the grace of the cross, the thief, the penitent thief, who tradition calls his name names and business. Uh, the Catholic Church actually has a, a saint that towards uh, the penitent thief on the cross. So we'll use that name for lack of another one. We know he had a name. He was a real man, a real man. We'll get to that in a little bit. We want to start with a few verses from the Amplified. Hebrews 12, 1-3-3. You're welcome to turn to that if you want to. This. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a crowd of witnesses who by faith have testified to the truth of God's absolute faithfulness, stripping off every unnecessary weight and the sin which so easily and cleverly entangles us, let us run with endurance and active persistence the race that is set before us, looking away from all that will detract us and focusing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author of and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy of accomplishing the goal set before him, endured the cross, disregarding the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, revealing his deity, his authority, and the completion of his work. So just consider it, and meditate on him who endured from sinners such bitter hostility against himself. Consider it all in comparison with your trials, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And there you have the, the amplified version, which is quite amplified, but not what a lot of meaning. It packs in there of why Jesus went to the cross. He endured the cross, disregarded the shame, because he had a goal. He had our welfare in mind. He had grace on his mind. Let's think about the cross. And I had a cross at home. I actually went down and found it and put it in the back of the truck and brought it to the house. Years ago, uh, for a Christmas program, the school did, A Prisoner in the Third Cell. And um, we did it over in the old, old sanctuary, and I had about a seven-foot cross I made out of four-by-fours. And I thought about bringing it in, the, bring it in here this morning, but I thought, well, maybe it would be a little distracting, even if it's a good object lesson. So we know what crosses look like. Just envision it in your mind, a cross. And what all that means. <laughs> so the cross was a horrible Roman instrument of torture and shame. and But now, for Christians, it's a symbol of Christ, the sacrifice which made possible the res- restoration, like Tyler talked about, of that relationship between man and God. So the cross, a horrible, instrument of torture now for us can symbolize something really, really good. Jesus turned that awful cross into some of God's grace and redemption, and we want to look at the cross today to emphasize God's grace. A few more verses, actually 11 verses, from Philippians chapter 2, talks about the cross a little bit more here. Therefore, if you get any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one Spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, whether and humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, having the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider himself did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being found in being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, God's own Son, with mutual agreement there in the Godhead, He chose. He planned to submit Himself to death on the cross. So, it's easy to think, why a cross? Why a death like this? Why such a horrible way to die? We don't understand totally those details of why, but we know that Jesus did it voluntarily. It wasn't some big cosmic mistake that happened and God barely pulled off or recovered from it. No, from the beginning, the Lamb was slain. From the foundation of the world, Jesus planned to offer Himself as a sacrificial lamb on a cross to save humanity, to show God's grace. It was God's idea to start well. Okay, well, the cross... It was a Roman invention, but it was also a devilish invention, and the devil planned to use it to destroy the Messiah. During Captain week, which is Holy Week, or the week leading up to, Egypt, to, to, um, to Easter, um, thing, with Satan's limited knowledge, he must have thought things were going according to his plan. There was increasing hatred of Jesus by the Jewish leaders. There was a traitor who was willing to betray a friend for 30 pieces of silver. This bunch of ragtag disciples of Jesus, they were likely to be paralyzed with fear if Jesus were captured. And then there was this wishy-washy ruler named power who would probably just give into to his subjects if they wanted to. Jesus to be crucified. The devil saw all this in the limited way that he can, and he thought victory was in his grasp. Crucifixions, which is what you called the act of putting someone on a cross. Crucifixions were usually used for the very worst criminals. And the reason they did such a public execution like that, well, there were several reasons. One, they were Everybody saw what happened to a person who did whatever, whatever crime. So, they always did crucifixions in very public places. Uh, of course, in Jesus' case, outside the city wall, on the hill of world and everybody could see make it really a detriment for anybody to consider committing whatever crime they had done. So they even had special teams. The Romans had special executioners of some and several soldiers who often carried this out. So starting, beginning like with Jesus there at the, the tribunal hall before Pilate, he was naked, that robe was taken off of him, and they, they whipped him, they splurged stu- stu- him with a metal or a bone-tip whip until their backs were just raw and bleeding and bloody. And uh, I read that, that um, men going to be crucified often were almost in a state of shock till they even left the, the judgment hall. Then the prisoner was forced to carry the cross beam, the patibulum, it was called, it's like the cross part of the cross, the stirpes, the main post was often left out on the hill, but the prisoner was made to carry this patibulum, this cross beam, which could have weighed 80 to 100 pounds, he was forced to carry that through the busiest streets out to the place of crucifixion recent streets were very proud of these days. When they got to the place where the crucifixion would be taking place the prisoner was thrown on the ground his arms stretched out and brutally nailed to the cross. to so that cross being uh, nailed to either wrists or hands. Uh, some were tied but uh, many were nailed. You can only imagine that bundle of nerves here in your wrists or in your hand, either one with a nail driven through that. What excruciating pain. Then they'd fasten that cross beam to the cross post and they'd set it up and let it jar into place, stretching every fiber in your hands against those nails. And then, often pulling the feet back to the post and a nail for each bone into the cross, the sides of the cross, or crossing the feet and a nail through the front into, into the cross. They actually found several, um, several skeletons or, or remain pieces of skeletons that had uh, bone, bones with holes in them that they knew that person had been crucified. One day they even found on the tip of the nail, they found some olive wood. They knew that it he had been uh, crucified on an olive tree, or or wood post from an olive tree. Death on the cross could take days. You, it wasn't a quick process. It was gruesome. the The pull of the nails on your hands made it excruciating to pull yourself up to where you could breathe. Sometimes you would use your feet and push against the nail there to try to help yourself to so come up and get another breath of air, but then the weight would sag back and back and forth. you push yourself up and breathe and back down and just the constant pain and then the approaching shock and sometimes you said even, even vultures, predators would come and feed on these people while they're hanging there. Uh, it was a terrible thing when, uh, when Titus, General Titus, the Roman general, surrounded Jerusalem after the rebellion in seventy, There were thousands of Jews crucified there. It was a horrible thing. But we're talking about Jesus' crucifixion now. Why did he let this happen? How could this have happened to God's Son? Remember those verses? He chose to take that route. We don't know exactly why, except that it was the worst that the devil could throw at him. It was about the worst thing that could happen. And Jesus chose to take that route. He says in John 10, verse 17 and 18, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. There was mutual agreement between Jesus and his Father, and the Spirit too. I'm sure how this would play out. There's a fascinating, you can't just Google it, there's a fascinating picture that was painted by a French artist named James Tillett. I came across to my study. In the late 19th century, he painted a painting called What Our Lord Saw from the Cross. And you've seen pictures probably of the hill with the crosses, the sunset maybe, and some crowds gathered. This is different. This is what Jesus would have seen hanging there on the cross with his arms outstretched. And all you see is his of his body are the cross feet at the bottom, obviously nailed to a cross. And then the people spread out below him. Um, There were the crowds gathered at the base of the cross. There were religious leaders jeering. There was a very sober centurion and soldiers. There were the sorrowful women weeping, remember? the The mother of Jesus was there. Her sister Salone, Mary Magdalene. There was a number of of various dead ladies there, all beneath the, the cross feet of Jesus. And Jesus looking down on the thing. It's very, very thought-provoking and important. In John twelve, thirty-two, the verse of, that Dana put up to us. If I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And that's the beauty of the crucifixion, was that Jesus was there providing salvation and looking down at humanity and wanting to lift us up, not to crucifixion, but to life. And of course, this isn't the end of the story yet, but uh, he, he was crucified to draw men to himself. He wasn't thinking of himself in spite of intense pain. He spoke words of compassion. One of the first things Jesus said maybe even as they were nailing him to the cross, was, and the verb here is is continuous action. Luke 23, verse 34, says, But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Like he was repeating, maybe over and over again. Jesus shows that death We don't understand completely why, but he did it for us. And that's grace. I'd like to look now, a little time left, I'd like to look now at a recipient of grace from the cross. And that's our friend Dismont, the thief on the cross. He's called a number of things. One is the penitent thief. But there were two two men crucified there that day along with Jesus. One on the left, one on the right. Uh, then, like I said, the Catholic tradition has, has the penitent faith named Dishmas, and the non-repentant faith name was Justice, according to that tradition. We won't make a big deal about it, but they were very real men. Uh, they had real feelings, and they had real consequences from a wasted or misfed life. So, who were they and why were they on crosses next to Jesus? Were they dying for anyone's sins? Yes, they were being punished for the kind of life that they had lived. Um, In Isaiah 53, they're called transgressors. Listen to this, verse 12 from Isaiah 53. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the grave, and he shall divide the spear with the strong, because he had poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So transgressors are are, are criminals or Spanish monotaurities, thieves it's called in one, one place, Luke calls them criminals, Matthew says robbers, uh, they, they were wicked men, and probably exceedingly wicked. Uh, they weren't dying to anyone else. They were being punished for some really awful things that they had done themselves. Don't know, it would be interesting to know, wouldn't it, if there was any connection with Barabbas. You know, Barabbas got off uh, because so he was guilty of, of insurrection and murder. Uh, when Pilate tried to negotiate with the crowd, and he offered to release Jesus instead of Barabbas, who wasn't a wicked man, the crowd, the religious leaders stirred up the crowd to choose Barabbas instead. So we don't know that. But Barabbas was there at the same time. Maybe these men were part of some kind of a sedition or something. So we don't know a lot about them, but they do typify guilty humanity sentenced to death unless there is grace. These two wicked men were hanging on crosses alongside of Jesus, and they're going to die for their sins. I thought about this a little bit, and I thought I would just write out a little bit, kind of a guess. What story for him? Justice's life had unraveled quickly, about to end now as an unmitigated disaster. What would his sweet mother think if she saw him now about to die for his crimes? The life of a criminal never begins with a plan, and asking so, comes into a world of circumstances that affect him for good and bad, for good or bad, and makes choices in reaction to those circumstances. The life of crime may have seemed easy at first, easier than eating out a living, farming, or shepherding in the Judean hills. At least it did at first when he was taken as a junior member of a gang of thugs that preyed on travelers on the lights of roads. It seemed easy. At first, when the loot and the coins were divided, what he wasn't prepared for was the guilt he felt after a murderous attack and the sleepless night when he saw victims pleading for their lives every time he closed his eyes. Maybe he had a rough childhood. Maybe kind and gentle influences were snatched away. Maybe his father was a thief. Maybe the Romans had mistreated people dear to him. Maybe society had cast him out. Whatever the cause, darkness had grown in his heart. What did he know about Jesus? What do you think the faith on the cross knew about Jesus? Had he joined the crowds incognito? Had he walked among the people listening to Jesus and heard teaching on loving enemies and doing good, our coming kingdom, the kingdom of God? It was his constant slogan that he buried his dagger deeper in his robe so no one would see what kind of man he really was. Old habits and patterns are hard to break, though, and the downward spiral continued. He tried not to think about where it all might end. But now, here he was, caught, caged, and condemned. He had experienced much of what Jesus had that morning, but what? The agonizing trip through the crowd of streets, the humiliation, the crushing pain of the nails, the hatred of men in the crowd. But over his head, the title only said "criminal," and he knew it was true. He was guilty. Guilty as charged. Worthy of death. Now back to the cluster of crosses now in the gloom of a supernaturally darkening afternoon. Hours of ongoing agony had passed already. This was now the stretching out the sixth hour, which was noon, towards the ninth hour of the afternoon. Eternity stretched out ahead for these men. When would this internal suffering be over? Death seemed like an elusive friend that never came. There were interchanges from the cross. There were words spoken from the cross occasionally, but mostly were insults aimed at Jesus. Even Justice, the, the, the criminal on the other side, this was his partner in crime, joined in and, and railing on Jesus. Listen to Luke's account from Luke 23. I'll, I'll read through there that interchange between Jesus and these two criminals. One well, of the criminals who hung their hurled and at so him, Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, Don't you fear God? This is Christmas speaking. Don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of death, we are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looked back at him and said, "Do I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And that's where mercy and grace met a mustard seed of here, and a saint was born in that moment in such an ungodly singing place. In the middle of Christmas' darkest day, as the devil waited expectantly to snatch another soul into a lost eternity, a little light flickered, and hope was born in Christmas' heart. Jesus had the strength yet to give his mother Mary into John's storage. Carrying that for her who had nurtured him and was now feeling that sword pierce through her heart. And then at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, roughly, at the darkest time of that eclipse of whatever God used to darken the sky, then Jesus lifted his voice up and said, He was finished and died. Uh, and grace had expressed itself for him. Mercy had won, and Sunday was coming. What about this, Mr. Finn? Jesus died. We know Jesus died. We know the resurrection was a few days away, that Joseph and uh, uh, some friends took his body down and buried him in a tomb. What about this? What happened to him? We talk about the thief on the cross and the conversion like that, such the just a confession in your God. You don't have to live a godly life necessarily. You just you accept the Lord, and, and you're you're good. You're, you're off to paradise, we'll say. Well, Christmas had maybe three more hours of suffering. Uh, I wouldn't call that just a lightweight Christian expression of faith, would we? I think he had watched Jesus the interchange of the people, the compassion Jesus had for the crowds. I think Dismas was convinced that Jesus was the king that he asked if he would take him, if he would remember him when he went into his kingdom. I think he will it out in those three long hours. We don't know when this Dismas start exactly, but when the Roman soldiers came, because the Jews did not want bodies hanging on the cross at sundown, uh, when the Sabbath began, they would come to break the legs, to keep, remember that process of pulling and pushing up breathe. They would break the legs so they couldn't keep doing that, and the, and the, the people there would soon down. Well, Jesus was dead already, but they broke those legs of those other two men with these big wooden thumbs. And this was, that was. A final crushing blow for him to a cruel cool and savage day. And then we don't know how soon, but he passed. He died. And beyond death, paradise. I just found myself fascinated and pulled into the story of the the futility, the hopelessness, the, the awfulness of death and, and suffering, and then this turnaround that Jesus gave, that changed everything for, for this man. And just wants us to recognize that Jesus does that for us as well. Though we might live for years and live for Him, the grace of Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross and make that possible. So, I want us to recognize that God's grace is what happened there on that cross. Now, God's grace helps us to live out a Christian life in the times we live in and with the people we live with and the roads we drive on and all those details. We need grace for life as well. But God's grace was certainly poured out in huge measure there that day on the cross. And we want to be thankful people for Him and what He did. I'm going to close with a quote from A.W. Toys that I found very special. And I think it describes the feeling of God pouring out His grace because He wanted to. He chose to. He wanted us. To be with him in paradise, A.W. said. Did you ever stop to think that God is going to be as pleased to have you with him in heaven as you are to be there? Well one of the shorter quotes from A.W. Those, I think, that I found it so special and important to think about God with the investment He made. He's going to be the delighted to have us there. Just as happy as we are to be there and so. So, God bless each of you.